Hello and welcome to our monthly podcast series, In Conversation With. Hello and welcome to the Global Cosmetics News Podcast. Today, we've put our heads together and identified five of the biggest trends that have shaped the last year in cosmetics. First, I'd like to welcome our panellists. We have Neil Farmer, who's a consultant at Neil Farmer Associates, Christopher Bannister-Bailey, who's diversity and inclusion champion at Croda, Jamie Mills, senior analyst at Global Data, and Joan Bell, brand insight and contact director at Free the Birds. Welcome, everybody. So the first trend that we wanted to start with is um, cruelty-free and vegan. Now, obviously, this has been a huge trend this year, vegan products in particular, and we've also had quite a bit of development on the cruelty-free front. Jamie, do you want to start us off, um, talk to us a little bit about what's happened over the year, how it's developing, and let's move on to where we see it going next after that. Yeah, absolutely. I think this year has been really interesting in terms of the development of this trend. I think we've seen a lot more brands being hands-on and really sort of recognising that, you know, cruelty-free and vegan is certainly something that consumers really care about and they're trying to integrate that into their propositions. Um, I suppose one notable one is milk makeup has moved towards 100% vegan products. Um, So we're actually seeing a lot of brands taking a very strong stance towards this and that's really playing into the fact that consumers are very much value-driven in their purchases, especially younger consumers. But we're also seeing that, you know, brands really need to kind of make this or be much more authentic in the way that they, you know, show their commitment towards these products and these services as well. Now, cruelty-free is an interesting one. We've had California banning animal testing, which effectively brings in an animal testing ban for most of the US, given that it's the fifth largest economy in the world, apparently, which is an amazing fact. I'm always confused because particularly living in the UK, we have had an animal testing ban in place for a long, long time. Yet this year, we've had a lot of brands come in with separate cruelty three certification. What do we think about this? Is it What is it? Why Why are they doing it? Why, why is it necessary for brands to be certified cruelty-free when there's already legislation in place? Is it marketing exercise, Christopher? Partly, I think it is a marketing exercise for brands to ensure that they are showing customers exactly who they are. And secondly, I think it is more to do with transparency and issues within the cosmetics industry generally of where we have been back in the 70s and 80s with animal testing to a point of now, like you say, Europe has had a cosmetics ban for a number of years, although animal testing is still sometimes needed via reach, not for cosmetics, but for chemicals in general. And in China, of course, they have their own legislation problems. I think consumers are really wanting cruelty-free and PETA labels on packet to say, do you know what? Yeah, we we want to see brands saying we're not just doing it. And also to ensure that um, that transparency where there is all this murkiness about whether the cosmetics industry is good or still doing some naughty stuff in the background that we shouldn't be doing, it, it just goes to make sure that the consumer feels that we are doing the right thing. So I'm all for it. I think it's good to be doing labelling to show all consumers that actually we're not not a bad industry. But 
is, is it transparent? Because the brands mm. that have certification, the ones that have announced it recently, Dove, CoverGirl, etc., they do sell in China. Traditionally, if you sell in China, that's considered a bad thing from the cruelty-free camp. Even if the brand is not testing on animals, then the Chinese government are. Um, and a lot of consumers consider that not cruelty-free. Now, obviously, today we announced um, that China's, they, they've got a pilot mm. going on with Cruelty-Free International, um, which is great news. But, I mean, going back to certification, Joanne, what do you think? Do you think that it is transparent? Do you think all certifications are created equal? Well, absolutely not. And I think I think it's notable that Space NK did a campaign with Carolyn Hirons around clean decoded. Of course, that was one facet. It goes to show the confusion there is in the consumer mind between the various forms of certification. And I think um, Jamie uh, alluded to um, PETA. But that's actually not a formal certification. There's not actually a formalised process like the, the Soil Association or Cosmos, for example, or indeed Leaping Bunny. So I think there is a lot of confusion in consumer minds as to actually what the terminology means, what the terminology means between different markets. Mm-hmm. And I actually feel that, you know, Leaping Bunny is obviously, you know, the, the pucker, um, a good international standard. But I actually think that the beauty industry is suffering from not only the lack of transparency, not wanting to give secrets away, but it's suffering from the issue around greenwashing, Mm -hmm. making bold claims, using words, labelling, certifications that really they have no paper they're even written on to make claims about the brands. So it's kind of like the pigeons are coming home to roost on that basis. I I think if there was a platform, a truly global platform for Leaping Bunny, as, as hopefully there will be with China coming on board, I think that would probably be the one that people would perceive cruelty-free. But going on to vegan and the confusion over vegan and using it as a kind of stand-in for cruelty-free, that in itself, there must be, I can think of five different logos off the top of my head, of which four of them are largely meaningless. So I think there's still a long way to go, but I think it's actually up to brands to take and even perhaps invest in global standards and to be seen to be only investing in the ones where they can uh, have transparency and have a paper trail. And I think the ones that don't are making it harder for the industry as a whole. Yeah. I mean, really, we need to be looking at a global ban. That I mean, mean, that's what everyone, I hope, (laughs) is working towards. Um, Until we get that in place, I'm just not sure that certification in the meantime is doing the same thing. I don't think that it's necessarily all of the certifications out there are telling consumers that this is cruelty free. I think maybe they're using it as an advertising marketing platform rather than a a genuine. Fundamentally, it does come down to um, a matter of full supply chain transparency and behaviour. I mean, because, you know, you can, when you talk about vegan or if you talk about organic as a minimum of 1% of the entire product. You know, this really has to be, particularly the larger brands who have the money to to be able to evidence their supply chains in such a Mm. way. It's really up to them to demonstrate and to be transparent and to put the money into showing and demonstrating their supply chain because it impacts the environment for everybody else. And ironically for consumers, I think that so many of the new clean, cruelty-free brands are nothing of the sort and they are able to zoom into that space and to make those claims because there is so little robust evidence of the larger brands and the larger businesses doing it. I think everyone says it. The Indie Beauty Expo we went, happened a month or so ago. Every brand's baseline was clean, vegan, natural, organic. And then if you asked some were fantastic and knew exactly, they knew the farmer where they were getting the product month, they knew exactly what their ingredients were about and a lot of it was 
frankly, greenwash. Mm. And, you know, the big brands could show the way to do it by being fully transparent. And then everyone else would have to follow. I mean, we're, we're nothing if we're not transparent, are we, Neil? What do you think? Well, you know, I mean, I've enjoyed listening to the experts in this. It's, it's not an area I'm an expert in, but I'm, I'm delighted to hear the, the conversation. To me, the brands are the guys with the power. And it's very important. I've always believed in my own industry that the brand is the driver in so much that goes on. They have the money, they have the power, they have the influence, they have the names. And if they're putting out statements that aren't accurate and they are uh, not proven, we are in, in a very bad situation. And it's got to be resolved, and not just in one part of the world, but, but globally. This phrase, greenwash, which we hear a lot in my industry, uh, it, it's certainly something which has played a big role, I guess, in all of this. Uh, so I, I would like to see greater transparency, greater clarity uh, with the brand certainly being honest and upfront about exactly what contents and, and products are. And what do you think, Jamie? Where Where's this trend going next? Do you think that we could expect a global ban in the next couple of years? And do you think the vegan movement might even take that further? I think there's still a lot of markets where this is still going to be a huge challenge. And I think you know, we look at it in the UK and it's, or in the West, for example, and it's obviously a really hot topic at the moment, but it's not necessarily moving as quickly as, say, for example, in China or, you know, in Asia, for example. So I think there are still some barriers and I think a lot of it's going to do with education. So um, obviously, if we have the bigger brands um, really trying to push this message out and, you know, obviously we are seeing brands across, you know, beauty, personal care starting to make a stronger move towards being labelled cruelty-free or, you know, having that transparency, then I think that should hopefully raise that awareness which drives consumers to put pressure on, you know, legislators, brands to really start, you know, being much more responsible in terms of their cruelty-free positioning. I think what's interesting perhaps as well is the brands that haven't gone for certification. I mean, if we're talking big announcements here, the body shop has been spearheading the, the global ban, but we haven't had huge announcements coming from them about certification. Why, why is this? Well, I think another side of the conversation needs to be about um, the difficulties that companies face in being transparent. Um, so to add, I suppose, the opposite side of the, the conversation into, into this, um, when you have a supply chain... And we've mentioned about big brands having lots of money to do this. But actually, the the complex nature of a company, you might have factories all around the world that have different products made on one line. And those products might go into different industries, not just into cosmetics. So a big company like Unilever may make part of its um, portfolio for home care or something else on the same lines. What does that mean? There are different standards in different industries and they're trying to manage that complexity. And yes, it's difficult. And we've talked about it before on the podcast we did earlier in the year about, OK, complexity is difficult, but it doesn't mean anything. I think it's right for our companies to talk about how much money it takes to decomplexify and the issues with certification. There's also within the clean beauty movement a small uh, kind of resurgence of halal standards and how halal is being placed on vegan cruelty-free brands as well. So it covers uh, multiple consumer types. But also with halal, you get that additional, well, actually, it, it is cruelty-free and it is animal-free because that's what Muslim consumers need. 
But halal certification is wildly complex and different imams have different standards and different processes within that. And that is another topic of conversation where we say, why is it so complex to do that? And why are the conversation points so different? When we as a Western um, society place our values on other countries, so we would prefer not to test on animals, that's great. Our conversation is at a point right now. In China, it's at a different point because people within China have a different relationship with animals. So as we continue to move forward, we often leave countries and people behind. So we also have to talk about that complexity of moving the message forward and how do we talk to a group of people about why it's not right to test on animals. That's part of the education that sometimes you don't get within all of the conversations on social media about isn't it terrible that such and such brands still produce materials for China. Well, I think it's interesting to note that I was looking um, at the topic and looking at some of the vegan alternatives to um beeswax or lanolin, for mm. example. And looking down some of the list of the alternatives, the environmental and animal implications mm. for sourcing um, these ingredients. You can think of avocado oil, which, you know, the drug cartels of Mexico are in intrinsically embedded within the avocado production in Mexico. Um, so obviously that has a human cost as well, but in, in other environments where you're using native Amazon trees um, causing deforestation. So, you know, there is always this balance, you know, lanolin, it's a byproduct of the wool industry. The wool isn't being made anyway, um, so we use it. Is it causing cruelty? Of course, ve true vegans would believe you shouldn't use wool, but there's a, a level of complexity. Every decision has implications Elsewhere, so you go animal free, you may damage the water table, for example. Mm. There is no one, the only answer to true cruelty free is to consume nothing. Right. There is no, there is always going to be an impact. And I guess it's, as Jamie says, there's, you know, the different standards in some places, the environmental piece will be the biggest driver for those people. And that perhaps brings me to the next thing, because if 2018's done one thing, it's that we've as consumers, as, as pure consumers, not necessarily within the industry, had scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal about our behaviour. And almost to the point where you find it hard to sift through what's good and what's bad. I mean, if our simple pair of jeans is using 12,000 litres of water, then we, we have to start asking these questions. One of the big stories, Neil, was plastic. Yeah. Um, do you want to <laughs> wow. talk to us a little bit about the uh, the year the yeah. year in plastic? Yeah. Well, where do I start? <laughs> no, it, it's been a tremendous... I mean, look, I've been in this industry of mine 40 years, and uh, it's been probably the most momentous year in terms of uh, announcements and strategies and things that are being done in a positive way uh, ever since I kicked off this business 40 years ago. Mr. Attenborough's program kicked it all off, of course, with Blue Planet, and mm. we saw the, uh, the tragedy events of, of the baby whale, and uh, the interest for me has been phenomenal since then as people have decided that, hey, what are we doing about all this? Why are our oceans probably polluted more than ever been before? What is the packaging industry per se doing about it? And why are we going to have this issue facing us by 2050? Our oceans are so polluted that we can't do anything in them anymore because there's so much stuff going around. That's been the starting point. For us in the UK, you might say, well, surely it's not as bad as that. And the answer is it probably isn't. Um, 
We do a lot of recycling at the moment, uh, PET bottles. Um, we recycle about 75% of the, of the beverage and the mineral water bottles. Um, we're not doing a very good job in what I call low-grade plastics, the thinner film, which is the big issue, actually, the big problem that uh, we still are facing despite a lot of announcements. And I'll say one thing about this year. Every company has been making announcements about what they're doing to improve their recycling, their investment in recycled materials, compostability, biodegradability. It's been huge. Are these things happening? The answer is not as quick as we would like. Uh, we still have... Um, Low-grade plastics, recycling rates are very low, less than 50%. We've got an awful lot to do in those areas. A lot of it is about separation of what I call the good plastics, the PET, which is 80% of our market, which is the material of choice at the moment. And I'll come on to that because there might be a material that's better than that. And separating in the recycling stream the good from the bad. Still a long way to go. Sadly, the situation is that investment in infrastructure is lacking. There's been a lot of statements by the government about this, and we still have a lot of work to do to invest in infrastructure. We have a recycling uh, a deposit return scheme coming in, possibly, and then we might well have um, a tax on companies regarding 30% recycled content of their materials. Less than that, there'll be a tax for imports as well. Those, those are positive things. So I can say the year has had good and it's had bad. Uh, what's bad is that we're still shipping out about 67% of our plastics. Our low-grade flimsy film is still going to Asia. Not going to China anymore because the Chinese don't want it. Hmm. So we're finding somewhere else we can go. Uh, Malaysia, actually, I think Thailand are going to ban it in 2021. So there are companies and countries in the Asian market which are still prepared to take it, and indeed Poland are as well. But we've got to come back to basics here. And our industry has got to find a way of taking more of these materials in its own systems. Investment in infrastructure, nothing going to landfill, better materials, recyclable, biodegradable, compostable. These are the things that have been happening in the year. And we've still got a hell of a way to go. I'm, I'm not complacent, but major FMCG companies have been making very positive statements. I'm really quite encouraged that they've been coming out and making these statements, not in five or ten years' time, but saying it's going to be happening in the next year or two. And, and then we have the materials that replace them, and PEF is a potential replacement for PET. There's investment going on in Holland at the moment involving Coca-Cola and various private equity houses. And we could have a material that could technically become superior, more cost-effective, and a replacement for PET in the next five years. But that's still five years off. There's still a lot of things to happen between now and then. And that's what we need. There's a gap between where we are now and where we'll be in five years' time. So it's exciting, but there's still an awful lot we should be doing. And certainly investment infrastructure is one of the big issues for me. On that note of, of things we should be doing, I mean, I see 2018 on a personal level as, as a sort of awakening. I hadn't considered, I have to admit, my impact on the environment on this note before. I hadn't considered that every time that I buy laundry detergent that I'm wasting a, a, a plastic bottle. Um, and now I have and I've yeah. changed. Is that dangerous for our companies? Because Ultimately, if the consumers are switching to, it leaves space for more agile companies, for smaller disruptor brands to get in on that. I mean, I've been the head of my household for 20 years and I've used the same laundry and detergent for 20 years and I switched three weeks ago to a company that takes the plastic back. Mm -hmm. um, 
is that danger that disruptor brands could come in in this two year window and and take some of the custom do do in fact our big brands need to do it even more quickly do you think home care is a good kind of example of a market that has had disruptor brands come in i feel the issue comes down to consumer and consumers choice and behavior so companies like method and ecova in the uk let's say um do tend to use recyclable materials, use smaller bottles, use concentrates that bigger brands also do, but mostly followed. Their product is at a higher price point. It's higher on the shelf, so you don't always see it. And it doesn't necessarily have the trust or um, consumer value proposition that big brands do. So your example of, well, now I've changed my behavior into doing it, I think is is where actually the big brands should be focusing their attention. Smaller, more concentrated, great, but let's educate people on changing our behaviors. It's interesting, straws are also a big problem. And so many articles I've read this year on social media about straws and please let's stop consuming straws and they're ruining beaches and all of this other thing. I, I go to a, a drive through every week just to um, <laughs> now it's coming it feels out. like professional. <laughs> I like to treat myself. Um, but every time I get, you know, a soda beverage, it comes with the straw. And in my head, I think I don't need that straw. But because it's a drive through I don't have enough time to say, no, don't give me the straw. But also the, the retailer is just handing it out as part of their behavior. You, you're having a soda, here's a straw. So I don't get the opportunity to say no. So I do feel there are things that brands can do to say to staff, actually, we can do better. We don't have to give that straw out. And if we don't, we save profits if it's, if it's a profit-driven thing for the company. But we're also saving the planet. So behaviors, I would say, both from consumers and brands. And, you know, as a cosmetics industry, we need to look at the products we're turning out. And there are some oh, interesting yeah. innovators in that space. Um, again, I've no idea of the pronunciation. Kaja Weiss? How, how do we Kaja say that? Weiss? There we go. <laughs> so, so I think there's some really interesting... The, the concept around refillability. I, th- mm. I think even before we get onto refillability, I think it, it goes in... Dior's a really good example. And also Guerlain's um, Orchid Aid. Divine Imperial, I believe. Um, they've just relaunched their packaging. It's, you know, they're, they're a super luxe brand. Um, they've reduced the cardboard packaging, the plinth, the inserts. They've reduced the packaging. I think it's by 60% in terms of the, the, the materials used. The carbon emissions accordingly, not only just weight, but also in the materials used. When we think about reduction, it's looking at design, brand design, you know, as an agency, one of the questions we ask is, you know, it saves money, it saves resources, it saves carbon emissions. And I have to say that actually the bigger brands really do come in every time we work with the bigger business. They, they, the big brands, will be coming in with, and this will be, and they'll be working with their supply chain to make sure that this bottle really is 10% lightweighted or and mm. um, we really are looking at the dimensions and the shapes and can actually we make a design feature of having a smaller cap can it look more elegant at the same time save um you know some grams of plastic and I, and, and I went to an interesting um, presentation from cosmetics executive women just yesterday where the uh, business behind astral brands I think it's dendron mm. managed just to produce um each astral jar by six grams of plastic 
fine six grams, but over the year, that's 3.6 tonnes of plastic. So I think that the perspective around reduction is it's the design thinking that means that you you have that forefront in your mind. Can we make this look even better with, with less materials? And I believe that Claire Weiss, you know, that brand, which is a beautiful silver, uh, it's a range of colour cosmetics, um, you know, that's a refill perspective. And similarly, Dior's doing it, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a ceramic jar that you then refill. So it becomes, in lux and prestige, um, that's actually a really good way of enhancing brand engagement, that you come back and you keep it. It's, it's an object. It's a beautiful object. You then refill and you have sustainability benefits. The challenge is when you come to mass... And people, you know, they, as you say, you know, you've been the head of your household for 20 years, you go in, you buy the same brand. Physically, what we're hearing is that the stores, the retail stores don't necessarily, they're not yet geared up to hold, physically hold Mm -hmm. on the physical shelves, the stand-up pouches that would replace the bottles, the Mm -hmm. pallets, the the actual entire shipping, you know, the, the square bottle, all of those facets that seem to a consumer, just do it for me, are highly complicated. But what we can do is make those incremental changes. And I believe the big brands really are doing that. But refillability and looking towards, you know, and as you said, Ecover and, and even Lusitan is a really good okay. example of a, a decent high-end brand. But no one would want to get the Lusitan refill as a present. No, you know, and that's their brand. That's their brand. So you, you know, there is that assumption that there's always going to be that um, initial purchase that has that kind of standout factor on the shelf, whether it's you or buying for a gift. So that initial moment, that's where reduction really has to work. Making those first purchases, like the KOIs is silver, it's beautiful. That has to be of a certain level to engage and delight the consumer. And then they come back and the product's good and they keep doing it. So it is a balance um, between reduction, but also you need shelf presence. And I think that it takes everybody asking that question, can we do it better? Can we do it lighter? We don't want to compromise. How can we do everything better? And I believe that is starting to happen. But as we talked about complexity, Mm. it's never that simple just to remove the secondary packaging. I mean, really, if we're looking at it from that perspective, then sustainability is the new luxury, isn't it? I mean, luxury brands are innovating in this space. People are spending more on sustainable or refillable products than they would. I mean, the new laundry brand that I've switched to is way more expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I live next door to a B&M. For those who live overseas or um, are, are listening to this from America, B&M is a, a massive discounter in the UK. Um I can get my usual laundry detergent for two ninety nine. This one is is five ninety nine, but I'm still spending on it. And the other interesting thing, which comes back to what you're saying, is that people, the retailers, are having problems. Really, that's just another reason for the consumer to go online, isn't it? Are we going to lose um, some customers through bricks and mortar store on this? What do you think, Jamie? There's definitely that risk. I think that you know retailers really need to kind of up their game in terms of how they can help consumers to achieve their sustainability objective. Um, As you say, consumers are probably changing their behaviours a lot quicker than they were, say, five, ten years ago in terms of the sustainability message. And I think the onus is really on retailers and brands to work together to kind of make that possible. Either it's through making, you know, recycling banks more accessible, uh, making refillable products much more available in the store. I think that that's really the the main thing is that we focus a lot about actually how consumers or the actual product itself when the consumer is consuming it. But what about 
after the consumer has purchased it. What happens, you know, people aren't necessarily that educated on recycling. So perhaps there are some initiatives that can be taken there um, by both retailers and brands to really encourage people to recycle, but also kind of help consumers to recycle by, you know, investing in services which could help consumers to really do that you know there are some brands which are kind of moving towards uh, having services which kind of I think you can send your recycled or your used products back to them and they'll recycle it for you and so that kind of accessibility is really important but I think again we're still probably a little bit away from that and I think online will definitely play a huge role in kind of helping consumers find that sustainable product that they can say, okay, I'm going to change my habit. Here's my alternative. I mean, one project trend that online has changed um, massively this year is bespoke. Shall we move on to talk a little bit about the bespoke trend? Do you want to start us off, Joanne? How's this developed this year? It's really interesting about bespoke. I'm slightly cynical. I think it's less that there's there's some of the brands that have really came through. I think Function of Beauty as a hair care brand has really, really broken through this year in terms of you know, shampoo brand. I think, what do they say, 15 billion combinations between all the different types of conditioners, hair product, um, colours, uh, fragrances and varieties, for example, which has actually kind of, it's being talked about, I think it's fair to say, but they're actually, the businesses are about three years old. Matchco, Bare Minerals is new personalised foundation, Lancome, and now I think just recently launched Clinique's ID, um, which actually, but this is the cynical bit. So the, the new Clinique ID has three different bases, five different additives. That's 15. That's 15. Well, <laughs> what, what's really, really interesting, I think there's a real tension between what I call true personalization and you know, bespoke, should we say, and customization. And I think that when you look at um, services like like the, the the Bare Minerals, and that's obviously Shiseido and Match K, that really truly is personalised to your skin type and tone. Uh, that really is as much as you can do within the confines of current technology. But most of it, and, and there are increasingly skincare brands, I can think of uh, brands that are uh, taking that kind of, uh, using an AI approach, helping people choose the products that are absolutely right for them, um, taking them through a decision-making process. And I can think of a couple of the acne brands out of um, MD Acne. Also, likewise, um, Hims and now Hers coming off from um, that kind of wellness, healthcare into beauty range, where, you, you know, you really are getting a personalised wellness and beauty products that suit you as an individual and likewise Neutrogena's Skin360 app which is you are literally having an app which can monitor help diagnose and constantly refine the product recommendations to suit your real skin there's a lot of kind of people attempting personalization which is really just yet more choice where it's actually very very little different um to actually going in and going hey i'm just going to buy myself a moisturizer and a serum um you know i I get why the brands are doing it because we all like to have products that truly suit them i guess it's a little bit like like i don't know is it personalization wash Mm. or bespoke wash um but you know it's very very similar is it truly bespoke to your individual skin's needs nah is it nice to feel that there is something that you can be part of the choosing process? Yes. I guess for me, it's always about the claim. Don't overclaim. Don't pretend that you're doing something you're not. I get why Clinique are doing it. It's manifestly on the trend. Do I feel that those types of products are any different from going to, I don't know, say Paula's Choice and putting in a questionnaire and getting a, you know, a, a range of uh, products 
uh, designed to suit your skin now. So I guess it's, for me, always between the gap between the claim and the actual, the delivery. I mean, ultimately, that is what's happened this year, isn't it? Is that the consumer expects more choice. You know, we had the huge splash of Fenty 40 foundations, even though several brands had done 40 plus mm. before. And now it's a numbers game, isn't it? But we still have the same amount of shelf space. So this area of bespoke but not bespoke is literally the only way they can do it. What do you think, Jamie? I mean, do... Are we saying that we actually we want 15 moisturisers to choose from rather than we want a bespoke moisturiser? Is that what we're saying? I think for consumers, I think they're really looking to ultimately just make sure that they have products that are tailored to them. So I think that that can manifest in a number of ways. Um, the Clinique ID example is one such way that brands can do it on a mass scale and they can say, OK, look, you can tailor your product to the base you want and we can make that really easy for you you can it also make sure that you can be reactive so if you think that your skin is patchy in the morning and then in the evening it's actually you know there's a different need you can actually be much more reactive to what your skin is doing in the day so I think that there's a place for that because consumers do actually want to have control over what they're doing um, in terms of you know the products that they're using and have a much more enhanced version of, say, just buying a moisturiser that says, okay, it alleviates wrinkles, for example. But then on the other hand, we also have our much more experience-driven and more accurate um, solutions where you have things like, for example, your online questionnaire, which asks you, okay, so what's your hair type? Are you in a place which has lots of pollution, for example? Is there many environmental aggressors? And then that all comes together and makes this one lovely product that, you know, is specifically for you. So I think there's definitely a place for both. Um, I think it potentially also comes down to cost because, you know, the Clinique ID product may be much more accessible, um, whereas, say, the absolutely bespoke product, which is absolutely tailored to your skin or hair, may be much more unaffordable. Um, so there's also that aspect. I think they both tailor to the need for more individualised products, but just in different ways. I mean, Neil, it's a, it's a huge packaging challenge, isn't it, yeah. to combine a, a serum and, and a base into one product and, I mean, and make them interchangeable? I, I was absolutely thinking just that very point. Um, it, it is a massive challenge and uh, the market is getting more diversified. There is much more customization brand extensions, range extensions, as you've been talking about. And uh, the challenge really is to make that, in the packaging sense, cost-effective, not to overpackage, uh, which we have been, if we're honest, guilty of it in the past. And uh, I do see in these markets particularly a move to do far more to make packages far more size-appropriate and, and far more customised. Um, but really, it's it's all these things we were talking about. Um, I was intrigued to hear about customization wash. That's, that's quite that's mm. quite something. <laughs> that, that, that's a great one. But um, you know, we we are still back to a consumer choice, and we're still back to a market where the choice is there for the consumer on the shelf in the store. And we still have what I call the seven seconds to make our purchasing decisions. So. 80% of purchasing decisions are still made in the store. And, and we've got to make sure our packaging looks attractive. And I think this is one of the great things I have seen this 12 months gone. Um, beautiful design, beautiful decoration, use of digital print, um, fan fantastic opportunities to make brands really stand out. The packs are getting more economically sized. There is more, I believe, of, of embellishment in the design process. 
Design is the most important thing at the moment to get this all right. We've got to have great designers. And we have. We've got a fantastic design industry in London. And, and you guys know this as well as I do. There are some tremendous designers around. And they're working on packaging projects with FMCG clients and also smaller brands as well. So we, we are doing more to innovate. We're doing more on design. But it still comes back to that shelf appearance and that pack on the shelf. And particularly in the markets we're talking about, that's still the big driver. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, especially if we look at a lot of the bespoke options can only be available online. But when we're talking Clinique, for example, or, for example, customised lipstick bars, are we really saying this is a new experiential retail and that this is what the trend is driving the trend, is that customers want to go in store and do something different? What do you think, Christopher? I, I feel... That yes, and we've, we may have talked about this before again in an earlier podcast about the experience trend really, again, giving that opportunity for brands to use their spaces more creatively about product trial, about product testing, about product usage within the store and within uh, with a store expert or a brand expert. You can do that so much more with colour cosmetics than you can do with a basic moisturiser. So to me, it's not surprising that you see store spaces becoming more filled with colour cosmetics than you do with moisturisers. Maybe we'll see it flip and we'll get 100 moisturisers to choose from. Uh, no, thank you for me. I'm happy with the one that I use. Um, for now, I don't know. Maybe there's something I'm missing. But Within that, I think that experience trend really does boost up the, the the ability for a brand to say, here's everything that we do in this. And it's customized slightly or it's personalized slightly, but it's 50 shades, it's 100 shades, it's, it's this. And come in and test it. Buy online later after your experience, after you found the right choice. Because now you've found the right choice, you never need to choose again. And that's really the message I think that people need to click and understand when it comes into the customization trend. It's once you've got a product, you you shouldn't really need to change again because it's for you. It's personalized. I mean, if we're talking catering to everybody, of course, another big story of the year was the gender. And uh, Christopher, you're perfectly placed to talk to us a little bit about how the uh, gender and diversity story has changed over the year. It's been a very interesting year for, for diversity. I feel 2018 is the year that, um, let's say Western societies, I won't speak for every country, have become aware that diversity doesn't just exist, but it's actually a great thing. And we see more now than ever brands that really want to be authentic, be genuine, and inviting people of all different races, genders, sexualities to the table not just to the table, to be front and centre. Of course, this is why I think it's the year of awareness. Brands have always been around that cater towards what would be called a niche, although people of colour aren't a niche. The LGBT community isn't a niche. It's a group of people that have never really been catered to before. The brands have already existed. Now, social media the mainstream media has cottoned on to the fact that these brands exist and they have power and they're making money. And investors realise that these brands have power in making money. So now we're more aware that it's all happening. And over the course of this 12 months, the number of stories, the number of um, clicks, likes, follows have all increased for brands that are catering towards difference. And it's brilliant. 
I think there are some things that have happened in the year that have really catalyzed it. We could talk about the Me Too movement, but I actually feel like the Me Too movement didn't just hone in on sexual harassment and the problems that women face in the workplace. I think it also pointed out to a group of people that uh, people that aren't necessarily white men from a place of privilege without trying to offend any white men in places of privilege it's really showing that if you want that you do have a voice and social media can help you catalyze that voice and create a huge tsunami of change and that's just really i think given other groups of people the ability to say yes i'm going to uh, go forward and, and say we're here and we're going to do this as well. Black Lives Matter, again, another movement that's really pushing forward that we have a voice and we want it to be heard. And that's cascaded into everything to do with diversity being pushed forward more so than it probably would have been. It's been a year of huge positivity, mm. but the one story and perhaps the elephant in the room that created a huge wave of negative reaction was Tess Holiday being on the cover of Cosmo. Do you think size is our next frontier? Because I think that's for the cosmetics industry, especially those who tout anti-cellulite and slimming creams, that, that's, that's a problem, isn't it? It's a horrible bias, isn't it? Well, I'm going to say as a slightly well-padded woman over 40, um, I don't think it's just, I don't just think it's fat, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, I also think it's age. Mm. Um, I think, and not just that, The I think the flattening of truly localised diversity. I think what, like Black Lives Matter is an mm. incredibly important platform and has been particularly in the US and to, to a lesser extent in, say, in the UK and, yeah. and in European markets. But the UK is not America. Yeah. And we have our own unique challenges within our economy, society, etc. And Japan, in its own way, has an incredibly old, you know, aged demographic, an older demographic. Mm -hmm. So each each country has its own diversity and inclusion challenge, and um, and that will, of course, vary. In terms of the beauty industry, I think that the taboos, the the, the beauty standards of young, slim, white, able-bodied, probably cis, probably straight, all all of the things. That, some of the changes have been incredibly positive. So this year, I'm, I'm thinking of um, uh, it's is it herbal elements, uh, metallics. They had they had for fairy tale princess hair. They actually had a woman with an afro. It was beautiful. It was an argan oil um, advert, and it's described on the website as fairy tale princess hair. That is so transgressive in an environment where. Fairy tale princess hair is straight, silky, probably blonde. You know that this is huge moves, and that's happened naturally. It wasn't made with a fanfare. And I think this is this is something about industry itself. And I think it's very interesting that Ellen Pompeo, who um, is herself married to a, a man of color in the states, called out in an interview with Porter magazine, mm -hmm. um, which was featuring her and two women of color, etc. Said the audience in this room is not diverse. The people that are making the magazine, the people on this shoot, this is what's going wrong. Because within the businesses, we don't have older people. We don't have as many people with disabilities. We don't have, particularly in the UK, we don't have, particularly in the UK, um, the British Asian community is hugely underrepresented. Right. Hugely. Mm -hmm. Because that is the nature of the diversity in the UK. That's just our diversity. Um, so I think when we tackle those issues within the businesses, within the industry, and that is class, that is race, that is age, when we actively look to change that within the businesses, when we go to, a, a, when I go to a CEW event, you know, everyone kind of looks the same. This is something, this is why 
we still fail to um, tackle the issues around age and fatness because we're scared to break these taboos. But the best way to break a taboo is to just break the taboo. Mm-hmm. And without fanfare, without a special campaign, without, hey, look what we've done. Mm-hmm. The best way that you could break the, the taboo of male makeup, cosmetics perhaps, is just have L'Oreal Men Expert have an advert with a bloke <laughs> with covering a spot with a concealer. Mm-mm. Just do it. Men would go as they are currently nicking their partners or concealers. They'd just go and buy it as spot cover-up. The most profound thing that um, they could do in colour cosmetics is to show... On an Instagram, Pat McGrath's Instagram, someone, Charlotte Tilbury's Instagram, the latest palette demonstrated on a slightly wrinkly eyelid without a fanfare. That's, I mean, that's just, you, Mac, do it, but quite often it's, look, we have an older woman getting her makeup. It's, I think the, the ability is, true diversity is when people are just in the room being recognised in right. the pictures we see, how we talk, not as a special new campaign but we're just doing what we say we're just doing it and I mean, making it reflective that that would be bold let's talk about social media because i mean mac and charlotte tilbury in particular they they have got a relatively diverse feed on all fronts however when we come to social media we're all filtering addicts that is so strange that on the one hand we've had a huge diversity drive and on the other we all want to look exactly the same and what do we think about that, Jamie? What, what about how can we say that we're diverse when fil- filters are now built into your iPhone camera? What do you think? I think there's a difference between diversity and just being appearance conscious. Um, I think that, you know, social media inherently just, you know, you either love it or you hate it, but people are taking selfies and they want to look the best that they can um, in those selfies. And I don't think it matters really what, age you are, what gender you are, you know, we mustn't forget that without social media, we wouldn't have any of these, you know, a forum for, say, men to start using makeup or for male influencers or male makeup artists to go online and be as bold as they have. So I think, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I think that we are also moving towards much more awareness of social media in terms of what is being doctored online. Um, you know, consumers are realizing that they are probably their best selves in their images on um, Instagram or Facebook because they can put on makeup, they can add the filter, they can have a great angle. Um, so I think there is that growing understanding that people do probably look better online. Um, as a general level than they do off. But I think that in terms of inclusivity, I think that social media has been a really great forum to kind of champion and get encouragement of people who are different and they're doing something different. And I think we can't forget that. And while we're on the topic of social media, social media has long been credited for the rise and rise of makeup. Now, uh, Neil, we're seeing a return of skincare from the finance point of view. Uh, do you think skincare is going to take over in 2019? Skincare is certainly doing very well at the moment. Um, and I think it's perhaps more for the more mature 
people in the, the market for more, if I can use that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, here's a man who uses Clarin moisturizer. So there we go. I've admitted it. Man's Clarin's moisturizer. But, you know, yeah, yeah, there we go. There we go. But, uh, you know, looking at what I know, um, I think I think skincare is very important. We all want to look our best, as you said. We all want to look attractively if we can. We sometimes do, we sometimes do not. But it doesn't matter. And I think it's all really about um, the face we put onto the world. And, and honestly, I do believe that skincare is, is very important. You talked about male cosmetics. Um, my generation, it wouldn't be something we would do, but the youngsters I know are embracing it. And uh, I've seen some stories that you've covered uh, and George, in your, your magazine, in your online, about male usage now of cosmetics. And I haven't got a problem with that because that's that's the world we live in. And it is a, a world of instant access. It's a world of instant uh, appeal. It's a world of action, beauty, and all those things. So I honestly believe that there are investments in those markets and there will be more investment. And I think particularly in the more mature consumer um, with a bit more, shall we say, cash in the pocket and a bit more money available to spend. Um, I'm not saying they're cost-effective. Uh, I'm not saying they perform well, but uh, they are coming at a price, and uh, the consumer quite perhaps likes that idea. Mm -hmm. It might add a bit more, so why not? So, yeah, I see that definitely as a trend going forward. And do you think um, we're going to be seeing a little bit of uh, backlash from the sort of quite intense skincare routines that are being touted at the moment? I mean, we've already seen people talk about the 10-step K-beauty that Again, apparently doesn't exactly 15, exist. I think I saw one at 17 on Allure the other day. I mean, there is definitely a backlash. Um, and when I'm thinking about we're seeing a kind of recognition, you know, kind of a return to functionality, but an enhanced functionality, uh, multifunctionality. So I'm thinking of Lixir Paste, you know, they're not claiming to do seven or ten steps, but they are claiming to do two or three, which in the morning, you know, not everyone. I think you're saying about colour cosmetics. I think there has, and social media, there's a bit of a reaction to the, the you know, the eye makeup I do is a 45-minute epic. Most people do not have the full hour and a half in the morning before, <laughs> to do a kind of graded 10 shadow eye. This is a, there's a practical question. And so I'm see, we're seeing a lot of multifunctional products um, return on the go, things that are around using it the way that people actually use skincare in their lives. And I think the other side of things is particularly like, I guess what I call skinification for body care in particular, and also hair care and scalp health. And I think this is coming from the kind of more natural wellness understanding that this is about self-care rather than beauty per se that actually if you feel smooth and soft and well-nourished skin then that gives you a, a really great feeling about yourself that hasn't anything to do with appearance per se it just feels really good to feel clean and moisturized from like head to toe and it really is becoming head to toe so we've seen lots of really interesting launches this year with uh BHA body and AHA body. So where ameliorate perhaps, you know, what they launched, what, four years ago, five years ago, perhaps. Now you're seeing, you know, multiple claims happening in on mass and mainstream body care that's really starting to hyaluronic acid. You're seeing ingredients that really used to only belong to the face now moving down onto the body and increasingly scrubs and scalp serums and scalp oils. And, and I think that's the kind of thing that everyone can feel and look great for and in themselves. It's kind of the opposite of the 45-minute eye. Birchbox identified, um, they said that actually 85% um, of people are what they call beauty casuals. And most of beauty industry in colour cosmetics caters to the 15% who are the beauty junkie. That means there's 85% of the market who want products to make them look and feel great, but who aren't going to be 
interested in the, the the 15 step. If you were a person that literally only used, I don't know, a wipe and maybe a light moisturizer, you are not going to go into a 15 step Korean routine. You might go into three or four, but that's where brands I think are increasingly recognized that a lot of people, that beauty casual consumer, so much choice there, so much complexity they were kind of almost like throwing up their hands. Oh, I can't understand any of that. And they were actually almost like retreating away from beauty. So I think that those that that the rise of multifunctional wellness um, additives into um, hair and um, body care is probably, you're going to see a lot more of that in uh, 2019. I mean, as, as one of the women in this room who's uh, pushing 40 <laughs> Gen X consumer, I see that as a good thing because it's the first time that I feel like beauty has spoken to me for quite a while because uh, as a distinctly beauty casual consumer, there's absolutely no way I would be grading my eyes in the morning. Um, however, mm. I, I, I am interested in hearing more about, about uh, simpler routines and multifunctional products. Do you think that's something we can expect over the next year to talk to um, consumers that have perhaps been slightly neglected with all this contouring business. I think it's been symptomatic of the market and where we've come from, let's say the past 10 years, we've gone through a global depression where people haven't been buying and then we've gone into a place where we are hyper-buying. What did the brands do over those past 10 years? They pushed for innovation. They pushed for prestige. They pushed for new concepts and new products to help stir the market's excitement, let's say, in products. So the Korean and the Japanese markets that were innovative and are beauty conscious have always pushed those trends. So that's what we've been fed. We've had a lot of that. I feel, as you have just mentioned, there are a number of consumers that just really didn't engage with that. If I was a brand or if I was in the cosmetics industry thinking about what trends are coming along, I probably would have seen the slow movement, the clean beauty movement, and also the lack of push for consumers outside of a certain demographic as an opportunity to say, well, what else is there out there? It doesn't surprise me that we will see a shift towards here's some uh, hugger kind of uh, Nordic, Danish trends coming back in. Just be calm. Just think about three products. Why? Because that's also a trend for us to say, well, let's relax and just feel well about ourselves and, and what we're putting on our skin and that we only really need a moisturizer with an SPF in it to, to function on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's absolutely fine. So yeah, symptomatic of a market over the past 10 years, pushing innovation, coming to its senses. Which brings me very neatly, thank you, to uh, my final question for all of our panellists, which is, if you had to choose the biggest trend to date and one that we're going to be hearing about into next year, what would you choose? Who wants to go first? Neil? Well, you know, we, we've had the discussions about sustainability and it's going to continue in 2019. There's, there's no way this is ever going to uh, disappear in any short, short term from now. Um, I honestly believe that all the brands that I'm involved with and, and the packaging companies as well as the brands are totally committed to getting this, this thing right. And I think we all know that, that we haven't always done the best we can. And I do believe 2019, 2020 is going to be another further push on sustainability. And uh, the packaging will reflect the product and the product will reflect the packaging. That, that's a good thing. So I'm quite excited about it because I think there's still work to be done on many, many fronts. And uh, we have to make sure that the financial situation is good. We've talked about finance and, uh, you know, there are storm clouds on the horizon. And we know that uh, markets are volatile and company financial figures are not fantastic in all cases. So there's that aspect that could maybe just 
drive us down a route of not being totally committed to sustainability, but making sure good enough is good enough. And in my book, that's not right. We've got to be seeing more and more what we've done this year. And uh, there are big R&D budgets available. All the major companies and the brands have R&D budgets, and they're not small. So let's use the R&D to innovate and make sure that sustainability products and our packaging uh, carries on the way it's been in 2018. Thank you, Neil. Jamie? Absolutely agree that sustainability is definitely going to be a big one for next year. But I think as well, also the inclusivity movement, I think, is going to be something that's really going to start, I think, gaining much more traction next year. I think we've laid some really great foundations in the last 18 months, um, particularly in the West. And I think that next year we're going to just see much more sort of focus on not just, say, age, gender, um, but also, you know, different appearances, you know, as we said about, say, larger um, shapes and sizes. So I think that's definitely going to be um, championed next year. I also think that's going to place a lot more pressure on brands to really start moving towards much more lifestyle focused products um, and moving away from those sort of traditional segmentations that we've seen in the past. John? I think one of the things that's come through here is, is, is around transparency. Um, brands being absolutely and honest as open as they can be because that's consumers are utterly demanding to know the questions no no one believes all of the various washes that we, we, we've talked about and I think the flip side of that is is around simplification because the more simple things are you know Unilever P&G was going to um, make a list of all of the, the fragrances that were in any of its products so you know when you release that list to a, a conscious consumer and they've got I don't know 15 or 20 fragrances even if they are kind of uh, allergenically neutral, that looks a lot. That looks complex. That looks scary. And I think the natural kind of the flip side to uh, transparency is that simplification, as we've already talked about in terms of regimes, using less in that sense of sustainability, using better quality products, less, simplifying what's in the products, removing things that don't need to be there, removing the that which makes your messaging so much simpler because you don't have to be hiding things. You don't have to be obscuring things in your supply chain. You know, the in, I expect inky lists on, is particularly a mass to shrink. I think that people are expecting to understand and be able to go to websites or the back of the jar to say, actually, why is your inky list 57 mm. and this brand 10? And there was a very interesting comparison I saw when I was looking at some of the vegan things. There were, you know, this vegan, elf vegan mascara versus axonym vegan mascara. The inky was three times longer on elf. It, this is this is where I see I kind of I think that that transparency and simplification are going to kind of interact together. Less is more. Christopher, mm-hmm. what do you think? I'm hoping that the next two years sets us up for the decade 2020 to 2030 with a rearrangement of the beauty industry. Thinking about actually all three of those items that you just mentioned: inclusivity, transparency, and really it fits within sustainable business. Both of those fit under that umbrella. I feel that there are so many pieces of work going on in consumers' minds that if we don't rearrange the way we think about the segmentation of consumers, the segmentation of products, the priorities that we place on products, such as education and awareness around what is actually in a product and know some of it isn't bad and some of it is not so good because of all of these reasons, that 
when we do that, and as a trend and as a um, as a movement going forward, we'll all be in a better position to be able to choose products that are right for us, that fit our purpose and our values as individuals and also um, fit with brands, but also will be more impactful on the world from a positivity point of view, from reducing problems, whether it's sustainability, whether it's inclusivity problems, or whether it's where does this ingredient actually come from? And is it from a place where the labor laws are terrible or the forests are being destroyed or something? So it needs to be a rearrangement of priorities and what we believe is right. Thank you. Well, on behalf of Global Cosmetics News, I'd like to thank you all for joining us today. And thank you. Thank you, our readers, for listening. <laughs>